Well, good morning. Take my mics up. There we go. Do I have it on? Good. First time I ever wore one of these, kind of, kind of like Garth Brooks. And, uh, but my ears are big, so it fits really well. And so, hi, my name's Kelly Jones. Um, I'm responsible. Someone asked me this morning, it's kind of funny. Someone came up to me and said, I want to know who's responsible for the birth of Kip. And uh, I'm only half responsible because Kathy's responsible for the other half. And, uh, but and now you know where Kip got his haircut and that whole thing. So it's a family trait. I want to thank Ken for giving me a chance to speak today. It's really nice of him. Uh, he told me I had to be done by 1030. And I thought, what is that, Ken? You give me the clock and you go by the calendar. <laughs> you know, I mean, I've heard Ken speak and he just kind of goes on and, on. you know, I mean, he was already getting ripped on. So I just kind of let it go. But, uh, well, this morning, there's one simple principle I should have known, but I learned the hard way this past weekend. And I want to start with it this morning. And this principle is really deep. I mean, I know Ken's a philosophy major, and I'm not. So I just want to make it a really deep principle today. And here it is. The principle is, tools are designed to make our life easier. Go ahead and write that down in your notes. I think it's on your introduction. Tools are designed to make our life easier. I decided I needed to edge my yard, so I started with a handy little tool that I had, and I took it out of my kitchen. That should tell you something right now, and uh, it's called a knife. I used a serrated knife to edge my yard. Now, I got the idea when I put my yard in, the guy who you know, was, was uh, dropping off the sod said, if you want to cut this, use a serrated knife. It works really good. And I go, okay, great. So I decided I'm going to edge my yard. I'll use a serrated knife. So I'm out in my yard with this knife hacking away on my hands and knees. And I spent all day doing my yard. And then, like, this next week, I come home, and Kathy leaves this ad on the counter from Home Depot that says, Electric Edger, $89. And I'm not the sharpest pencil in the pack, but I figured out Electric Edger. Maybe I'll get one of those. So I went down and bought it. It's amazing. How great a power tool is compared to the knife. I mean, a knife is designed to cut tomatoes and bread, but not to edge your yard. So tools are designed to make our life easier. When I was in college, I worked for the uh, gas company, and um, college student, not really knowing a lot about equipment and tools and all that. And my boss said, hey, Kelly, go to the truck and get me a left-handed monkey wrench. Well, I knew what a monkey wrench was, so I go to the truck, and I'm opening up the tool thing, and I'm looking around, and I find this monkey wrench, and I'm thinking, is this the left-handed or right-handed one? And I put in my left hand and my right hand, and then I just brought it back. It's the only one I could find, and he just thought that was the funniest thing in the world. And then he told me that college people were educated beyond their intelligence. (laughs) And he just wanted to make fun of everybody who ever went to college. And I don't know about this, but my daughter said one time, don't be a tool. And I didn't think that was a positive thing. I mean, I'm old. I don't know what that means. But it didn't sound good, okay? And uh, I'm in that baby boomer, okay, thing. So I wasn't really sure what that was. But this morning, we want to continue on our series that Ken's started last week on the book of James. And I want us to look at tools for tough times, tools that God has given to us that we might be able to use them to endure to persevere through trials when they come into our life. And if you were here last week, Ken pointed out that James calls those tough times all of us face trials. He shared that we can experience pure joy 
when we encounter these trials that life brings to us. But as our faith grows, so does our ability to trust God. He finished by saying this. He said, when we are in the midst of a trial and we don't know what to do, we can ask God for the tools we might need to get through those tough times and make it easier. So that's what we want to do today, look at tools for tough times. When I think of the word tough times, it reminds me of a saying that's on probably 80% of every high school locker room. And most of you know this. It says, when the going gets tough, the tough get How many of you know that? How many of that was in your high school? Okay. I can't see, but a few of you are good. Okay. So let's get going this morning. If you have your Bibles, turn to James chapter 1. We're going to pick it up there. We're going to focus on verses 6 through 12 this morning, kind of where Ken left off last week. But just by way of background, I want us to start in verse 2, so I'll start there this morning. James says, Consider pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops endurance. He goes, Testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its works so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking in anything. I think we need to remember this, that God's purpose for trials in our life is that we might come to the measure and the fullness of Christ. God's goal for us who are believers is to be Christ-like. And God has a lot of ways to do that in our life. He uses the word of God in our life to mature us, to bring us to be like Christ. But one of the things God uses in our life, one of the things that we never ask for, but God says, if you want to grow, if you want to mature into Christ's likeness, I'm going to bring trials into your life. I'm going to test your faith. Because if you notice what James says here, he says, perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, lacking in nothing. In other words, God wants to bring us to that completeness, to that maturity in Christ. And one of the ways he's designed for that to happen is through trials that we encounter in our life from time to time. And so this morning we find ourselves maybe in the middle of a trial. What are the tools that God has given me to get through? Notice what he says. The first tool we want to look at is a a wrench. I'm going to call it the wrench called wisdom. Wisdom could be defined as the ability to view life from God's perspective. And we're going to look at two questions. The first question is this. How do I get it? I'm in the middle of a trial. I don't know what to do. How do I get wisdom? I want you to notice what he says there in chapter, uh, verse 1, chapter 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, he says, you should ask God. You say, you're in the middle of a trial. What should you do? He says, ask God. Here's a question I think all of us need to answer. Is God the first or the last on our list of people we ask? In tough times. Is God the first person we go to? Or is he like, I'm desperate. I have nowhere else to turn. I'll try God. Is he first or is he last? Like, if I have real estate issues, I think, my, I don't know, if, Priscilla, are you here today? Can I see your hand? Priscilla, yeah, sweet. <laughs> if I have real estate issues, guess who I call? Priscilla Martin. She's my real estate agent. Kathy and I have used her. We've lived in Bend 13 years. And so if I don't know what's going on, we call Priscilla. Priscilla, you tell us what to do. We trust you. If I have car issues, I have a friend named Glenn. He knows everything there is to know about cars. Everything. Motors, outside, inside, what they cost. Like he'll go along the side of a car and he'll go like this. Kelly, there's Bondo right there, dude. You don't want this car. Oh, okay, great. Thanks. You know, I mean, he knows everything there is to know. You know, if I have health issues, I have a heart doctor, Dr. Widmer. He's great. I call him. If I have relationship issues, I watch Dr. Phil. 
I mean, you know, all kinds of stuff. We all have people we go to when we need wisdom. But I want you to notice what God says here. God basically says this. Hey, come to me. You say, why should I you know, go to God first? Well, look what he says in verse 5. He says, if you lack wisdom, he should ask God. And then he says, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. In other words, God is not stingy when it comes to giving out wisdom. God gives generously. I work at a boarding school with high school guys. And it's really funny, but one of the things we do on Tuesday nights, this is high school students that are 14 to 17 years old, is we play bingo. I was walking through the store one day, and I saw this bingo set, 50% off. I go, hey, we could play bingo at Bridges. So we play bingo. It's like a retirement home. And you wouldn't believe the guys, they're into this, huge. Because what we do is we go like, well, tonight's Sister's Bakery night. You ever been to Sister's Bakery? Like a dollar, you get this maple board. It's like that big. weighs about a pound. And so we'll like put out the, and they'll walk up, oh, man. Because they don't get soda or candy or maple bars. None of that is on their diet. So anything you bring in like that is like contraband. You know, they get so excited. So it's like, what do we got tonight? I remember one time I got really, you know, I found, I'm always finding cheap stuff, right? So one time I went to like Food Mart or one of these cheap places, and I got like a 12-pack of soda for like two bucks. So I bring in a whole 12-pack of grape soda. And one kid goes, oh. We win a whole, you get the whole 12-pack, dude, if you win. So this one kid named Bolster, okay. <laughs> you can just know by the name, okay. He wins the 12-pack. Okay, that night he drinks eight, you know. <laughs> that was the last time we did that, okay. Just, it was not a pretty sight, okay. The poor night guy, he had some serious problems later on. But, but you know, it's one of those deals where, like, you know, so we bring out all this stuff. So I always tell him this. I always say, listen, hey, if you want to win, you always got to tip the dealer. I'm the dealer, right? I'm the one who does it. So I go, you got to tip the dealer. It's really funny to see kids win because they'll, like, they'll like win like a maple bar. And a kid will like come by, hey, Kelly, man, thanks. And he'll rip off like a third of his maple bar and give it to me. Another kid like give me like a little pinch. I mean, just like this big. Then other kids would be like, dude, you didn't tip the dealer. And go, oh, I forgot. They don't forget. But what they're thinking is this, Kelly, you can get a maple bar anytime you want. And we can't. So I'm not giving you any of mine, dude. I don't care if you brought it in or not. It's mine. Now, God says here, hey, when it comes to wisdom, God could say, you know something? You didn't come to me. I'm just going to give you a little bit. Just enough maybe to get you one day at a time. Now, what does God say? God says, I'm going to give you generously. I'm going to give you more wisdom than you could ever use, if you ask me. Another great statement he says here is he says, without fault. You know what that means? That means God's not going to hold it against you. God's not going to say to you, dude, you, you were, I, I was the last resort. Why should I give you any? Or you're not worthy to get any wisdom. Or, you know, I'm really tired of you asking me all the time. How many of you like naggers? I mean, what if God was like that? Hey, God, I really need it, man. I'm struggling, you know. And God goes, would you quit bothering me? You asked me once. I don't need you to ask me all the time. God doesn't say that. God says, I'm going to give it to you generously and without fault. I'm not going to hold anything against you. You can come to me as many times as you want. Matter of fact, later on in the book of James, James 4, 2, you know what James says? You do not have because you do not ask. You know, so often we struggle and we just don't even go to God. 
We don't even ask him. We don't even get down before him and say, you know, God, I'm in the middle of this trial and I really don't know what to do. And I I don't know how to act. I I don't know what's going to happen here. I can't see the end. I don't see any light at the end of the tunnel. That's all God wants you to do is just go to him. And so James says, hey, the first tool is the tool of wisdom. So the first question is this, how do I get it? Will you ask for it? But I want you to notice the second one. James goes on in verse 6. How do I use it? How do I use this tool called wisdom? Notice what he says there. Verse 6, James says, But when he asks, he must believe and not doubt. Because he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That man should not think he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all he does. Now, I like to fly fish. I love to fly fish. Let's be honest. It's one of my favorite things to do. And I love to use my flow tube. I have a couple flow tubes, and flow tube's just a great way to fly fish. I mean, you get in this tube, and you kick out into the lake, and it's just relaxing. You're just enjoying the scenery. You're out there floating around. You got fins on. You're kicking around. And so I want to illustrate what James says here by telling you two of my favorite fly fishing stories. And all I can say is the names have not been changed to protect the innocent. Notice what he says. He says, I use this tool by faith, but he who asks must believe and not doubt. In other words, he goes, hey, if you you want wisdom, you come to me and you ask me for it. But listen, James goes on and says, you must believe God. You must ask him and then have faith that God will come through. You can't doubt it. You have to understand that God's right there for you all the time. When Kip was younger, he was like 12 or 13, he used to like to fish with his father. It's a great thing, father-son time. And then as he got a little older, he realized that I would love him anyway if he told me he didn't like to fish. Kathy said, I really don't think Kip likes to fish. Oh, yeah, yeah, he loves to fish. Kathy goes, I don't think he does. No, he does. He loves to fish with his father. He likes to fish. And one day he goes, Dad, I I really don't want to fish. I go, why? And he goes, well... First of all, it's an hour there, it's an hour back. Secondly, it's cold, I get cold, you don't care. (laughs) Thirdly, if the fishing's bad, you never quit. And I get bored. So really, I would just rather not go anymore. And I said, okay, you're out of the house, you're gone. (laughs) No, you know, I love him, so I said, that's fine. But I'm going to tell you, one of the last times, he was in middle school, we're driving to Lost Lake. You ever been by us up on Sandy Am? So we're driving the Lost Lake. It's early in the year, so there's basically snow around. The water in the lake's completely full. It's high. Weeds all around the lake. As we're driving there, Kip, being in middle school, downs a couple Mountain Dews. He broke the first rule of float tubing. Never fill your bladder before you go out into the lake. <laughs> Big mistake. Okay. So we're out in the middle of the lake, and we're fishing. It's kind of cold. The water's probably 39, 40 degrees. It's weeds all around the edge. And all of a sudden, Kip comes up next to me and he said, Dad, I have to go to the bathroom. I said, well, that's normal. Look how much you drink. You know how fathers are. He goes, I go kick to the shoreline. He goes, Dad, there's no place. He goes, I got an idea. He goes, hold on to my tube. (laughs) So I grab onto Kip's tube. And all of a sudden, I kind of look over. And he's crawling up on the seat of a float tube with fins on. So he gets up on the seat, he unclips his little waders, he pulls them down, he's got sweats on and all this other stuff. He kind of pulls it down. I don't even want to look over there. Okay. Next thing you know, I feel a warm sensation on my hands. And all over my flow tube, on my fly rods, 
And what am I going to do? If I let go, he goes into 39-degree water over his head. And then i got to go in after him. So what do I do? I hang on. You know, as I thought about that, you know what I realized? He knew I wouldn't let go. He knew that if it went bad, this is my dad. He's responsible. He's not going to let me just fall into the water. If it was his friends, what would they have done? <laughs> You're out of here, dude. What are you doing? So either I got wet or Kip got wet. It was one of those two things. I guess it was me. I only say that to say this. In a strange, weird way, there is an analogy here. Okay, trust me. That's the way God is. He won't let go. He won't let go. Why does God say, hey, don't doubt me? Because God's saying, hey, I'm not going to let go. As far as the east is from the west, what? I've taken your sins and moved them away, God says. God says, hey, guess what? Nothing can separate you from my love. Nothing. Nobody can do that. I won't let go. When the times get tough, when you're struggling, you come to me and you say, God, I need your help. And God says, then you need to trust me because I'm not going to let go. I'm not going to leave you hanging. I'm not going to say, hey, guess what? Oh, I got busy. I got other things to do and I forgot about you. And so James says, hey, if you're going to trust God, then you've got to have faith. You can't doubt. My second flow tube story is this. That was my first one. The second one is, I'm fishing this last year, and I like to go to this place called Crumbo Reservoir. How many of you have ever heard of it? Only, yeah, I didn't think so. Okay. It's out in the middle of nowhere. If you don't believe me, I'll just tell you this. You go to Burns and take a right. Okay. So it's out in the desert. Okay. Nowhere. And there's one little sign, Crumbo. And, and we fish it every year. Me and a buddy of mine, he grew up in Burns. He knows it. And it's a great place to fish. And you're out in the desert. You're out in nowhere land. You drive down this road like five miles on this dirt road, and there's this reservoir out in the middle of nowhere. So we're out there fishing. It's a great day. Fishing's going well. And in the afternoon, this thunderstorm blows in. And if you're out there in the high desert in nowhere land, this is a huge thunderstorm. It blows in. We're out in the middle of the back part of the lake. And it's never the way. It always works out this way. The wind blows the other way that you're headed. And if you know anything about being in a float tube, when you get into a 20, 30-mile-an-hour wind blowing against you and you're kicking in the water, you're not making real good progress. So my buddy who's younger than me, you know, he's 30, I'm 53, he's like 30, 30, 30 yards ahead of me. So I'm thinking he's going to come back and help me. Are you kidding me? He leaves me. And I'm out there, and the wind comes up, and it's blowing 30. He thought it was going 40 miles an hour. White cap and blown over the back of my, and I'm getting all wet. I'm in this tube. And I'm kicking as hard as I can, and I'm not going anywhere. And then I start to get a little panicked. Like, people die doing this kind of stuff. You know? I kind of got to chill thinking about it. Well, then the worst case scenario, I got these huge fins. My fins got stuck straight down, and I'm getting blown backwards. And for uh, like a second, I thought, I'm getting face planted. I'm going to blow over and face myself with my tube on top of me in a 40-mile-an-hour wind out in the middle of this stupid reservoir where there's nobody else out there. And then I decided, okay, Jones, you've got to calm down. You know, I was getting kind of panicked. So I kind of leaned back, got my feet up in the air, turned sideways, and kicked toward the rocks on the side. Instead of fighting it, I decided, I'm going sideways to the bank, and I'll worry about getting around the corner later. So I got to the bank, and a huge rock was out there. I just grabbed onto that rock. And when I got a hold of that rock, I finally felt safe. 
I wasn't getting blown anymore. What does James says if you're the doubter, if you doubt God? He says you're blown around like that. You're blown like, the, like a wave in a storm. You just get blown all over the place. Why? Because you have no rock to hold on to. When I grabbed onto that rock, I, I was the first time I felt safe. I just kind of creeped along the shoreline until I got around the corner where the dock was at. You know what David said in Psalm 16, verse 2? David, Saul was after David. You remember the story? Saul's after David. He's trying to take David out. And when it all came to the end, and David was, uh, was victorious, David wrote this in Psalm 16, 2. He said, the Lord is my what? Is my rock. You know, if you're a double-minded person, chaos can happen in your life. Let me read you a similar verse. Paul put it this way. He said, Ephesians 4.14, that we are no longer to be infants tossed back and forth by waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunningness and craftiness of men and their deceitful scheming. Double-mindedness leads to chaos. James says a double-minded man will be unstable in all he does. You ever seen people who get into a trial and all of a sudden they just start going everywhere? They try this, and they try that, and they try these things, and they try different teachings, and they try different ideas, and different, and they're just searching all over the place. And their life just kind of gets blown all over the place. I have a good friend. After his first divorce, he became a Scientologist. Joined Scientology. He was an accountant, so he ended up being one of the head accountants down in L.A., and he would call me from time to time, and you know, and, and I tried witnessing to him a lot. And the next thing I know, he's a Scientologist out of the blue. I mean, he's big time into it. Then he gets married again, marries a Scientologist. After a second divorce, he became a Christian. He called me one day out of the blue, and he said, Kelly, you won't believe this. What? I'm a believer. I found faith in Jesus Christ. He said, I finally realized what life's all about. And I finally feel secure in where my life's going and what's going on. Before that time, he was just all over the place. He was just reaching for anything that might help him until he found the solid rock, which is Christ. He found a true perspective on life, which is from the Bible. He's been a believer for the last five, six, seven years, and he's doing well in his life. And all I can say is James pointed out clearly to us, when you come to God and you trust God, trust him. Don't be double-minded. Jesus said, what? No one can serve two masters. So when trials come, we want to doubt God. Why me? Why now? I don't deserve this. And God says, hey, just trust me. Look at the second tool. Sweet, I'm doing good. First tool is wisdom. The second tool is a hammer. We're going to call it humility. And I want you to notice, James is going to point out two positions, the high position and the low position. It's interesting what he says here. And I want you to notice what he says about the high position there in verse, uh, verse 9. He says, the brother in humble circumstances ought to take pride in his high position. You know, what is James saying here? I always thought as soon as you took pride in your humility, you just lost it. You know what I'm saying? I'm proud I'm humble. That doesn't make a lot of sense to me. I've always taught that. Man, as soon as you're proud that you're humble, you just lost your humility. You know. But look what he says. Remember, James wrote to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. Many of these people, I'm sure, before they were scattered, before they um, were extremely rich, and they had lost everything. I would call that a trial, wouldn't you? To have a lot of wealth and have nothing. 
I read about a man named William Bud Post who in 1988 won the Pennsylvania Lottery to the tune of $16.2 million. Today he lives on $450 a month in food stamps. A former girlfriend sued him for the, uh, a share of the winnings. His brother hired a hitman to kill him, hoping for an inheritance. He went to jail for firing a gun over the head of a bill collector. You know what he said at the end of all this? William Bud Post summed up this trial by saying, I wish it never would have happened. It was a total nightmare. 16.2 million, it's all gone. James says, your circumstances might be poor, but you might be living in poverty, but take pride in your high position. In other words, he says this, never forget who you are in Christ. You might have nothing, he says. You might have lost everything. You might be living in utter poverty, but never forget who you are in Christ. You have an inheritance that will never go away. Secure for you in heaven. Never forget that. Our daughter Kim is in your group of the five people in Uganda. And she was excited about going, and we were excited for her to be able to go. And, and what do you think those guys in Uganda are saying today? You kind of heard Ken share about all the little kids and the poverty they must be experiencing and saying, well, what would you say to those people? If you really had faith, God wants you to prosper. God wants you to be rich. The reason you live in poverty is because you don't have faith in God. Do you think that's what they're saying to them? you think they're saying to the kids that have AIDS, if you really had faith, God wants you healed? You think that's what they're saying to him? Or do you think in, they're saying to him, do you realize that God loves you so much? Do you realize your inheritance is in heaven is so secure? Do you realize that you might have not a, a lot here on earth today, but guess what? God has promised you the same exact riches that I might have. What a great truth that is. And so James points out to those people going through trials who are living in other poverty. He says, hey, don't get discouraged. Don't get down. Your position might be low here on earth today. But your position in heaven is high. Your position before God is you're a child of the king. The same God that loves the rich loves you and has a great plan for you. And you're going to be with him for eternity. Never forget that. But look what he says to those in the high position. It's interesting. Which position high or low describes us? Look what he says to the verse 10. But the one who is rich should take pride in his low position because he will pass away like a wild flower. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plants. Its blossom falls, its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich man will fade away and even while he goes about his business. You know, I really believe that James talking about us. You say, I'm not rich. I drive a Plymouth Sundance for crying out loud. It, the paint's peeling off and my parents call it calico. Sorry, Kip, you're just an easy target. And, uh, hey, we all would say, well, I'm not rich. I'm not rich at all. I used to say that until I went to Mexico for nine straight years and walked out into the middle of nowhere and saw people living in pallets with blue tarps, people who couldn't even dig the ground because it was too hard to have an outhouse, just had to go down into a little uh, cavern, little canyon. And I came to realize on my worst day, when I think I have nothing, I'm so rich compared to these people. So I think James is talking to me in these verses. James is basically saying exactly the same principle. 
that Paul taught. 1 Timothy 6.17, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, not to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God who provides for us with everything for our enjoyment. In other words, don't trust your wealth to do for you what only God can do. Trials are not respecter of people. They're equal opportunity employers. They come on the rich as well as the poor. Paul Allen, the richest owner of all pro sports teams, he owns the Blazers and my beloved Seahawks. The sixth richest man in the world is a cancer survivor. His cancer's in remission. All the wealth that he owns couldn't keep him from getting cancer and really can't keep it necessarily from coming back someday. Trials aren't, aren't based on, well, only the, the poor get trials. The rich get them just as equally. But James wants us to realize this, how temporal our wealth really is. He says it will wither away like a flower in the hot sun. Somebody asked a question when they saw the hearse in the funeral possession go down the street. I wonder how much he left behind. And the answer was what? He left it all. <laughs> he left it all. I don't know about you, I've never seen a U-Haul trailer behind a hearse. I've never seen that. And so what does James say to us? You can't trust your high position in this world. You can't trust your money. You must humble yourself and put God first. Trust him when trials come. Think about it. It's so easy. It's so easy, those of us who live in America, those of us who have so much wealth, some of us who have health insurance and all the things that we enjoy here in the country that we live, it's so easy for us when trials to come to think we can figure it out. We can somehow buy our way out of it. We can somehow think my position, my wealth, what the, all the things that I own will be able to get me through this trial. And I really believe this. God designs the trials for us because we live in a totally different culture than a lot of people do in the world, that he designs trials for us specifically to take all those things out of the factor. So that we can't trust our riches. We can't trust our position. We can't trust those things. We have to what? Trust him. Because only when we trust him are we really going to grow and mature like Christ wants us to. Well, I see my time is getting away. I just want to point out one last thing. The price for perseverance. So what does God promise to the believer who puts this into practice in his life? Who counts his trial as pure joy? who grows and matures in his faith, who seeks God for wisdom and faith and trusts him all the way, who in humility realizes his true position before God. What is the price for perseverance? Underline verse 12. He says, blessed is the man who perseveres under trial because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who loved him. Blessed has the idea of a deep inner joy that only God can give. I don't know about you, when you see somebody who's experiencing a trial and you see joy in their life, you know God's presence is with them. When they can count it all joy, they might not be excited about what's going on, but in their heart they know God's in control. And God says, blessed is that person. The crown there is is an athletic term for, remember in those days when you won like the Olympics, they would give you a wreath and they would put it on your head. That's the crown. He says the crown of life. A lot of different ways people interpret that. Some would say, hey, the crown of life is for those a crown given at the judgment seat of Christ for those people who persevere through severe trial. Others would say it's just a reference to eternal life. God promises those who persevere, those who demonstrate their salvation by persevering to the end through serious trial, God's guarantee for them is eternal life, the crown of life. All I know is if you look at the last part, what he says here is this. He says, God has promised to those who love him. Our perseverance under trials Shows God we love him. 
Hey, dealing with the hand you've been dealt. I don't know where you're at today. We all come in today. We all come in in different places in our life. Some of us right here today are maybe right in the middle of a huge trial that's going on. Some of you here today might be coming out of it. You can see the light at the end of the tunnel. Some of us, we don't even know it yet, are just ready to head into one. I just want to be encouraging today for that. You don't know it, but you just might be getting ready to head into one. You don't know when they're going to come. But remember what God has promised us today. Never forget what James says here. There's blessing and joy. There's growth and maturity. There's wisdom generously given by God. And there's a crown for those who persevere to the end. Let's pray. Father God, we do thank you today for your word. And Lord, as James wrote this so long ago, we would think so often in our life that this would not apply to us today. But Lord, what's true today was true in James' day that trials still come our way. You said here that we should count it all joy, not if they come, but when they come, Lord. They're an evident. Lord, and those of us who've lived a long period of time and some younger, some older, have experienced trials. They come in all shapes and all sizes. And Father, today I just pray that you would help each one of us just to trust you. Lord, you're an awesome God. You are the rock. You're the one that we can trust in. Lord, when everything looks bad and no one gives us any hope, Lord, we can come to you. And you will give us that peace that surpasses all understanding. You'll guard our hearts and our minds. Lord, so give us faith. Help us not to be double-minded. Lord, you know how easy it is for us to get distracted. Father, you know how easy it is for us to not trust you, to doubt you. So, Lord, sometimes we even pray, like you said in Ephesians, that you give us the faith to believe, to trust you when times get tough. Thank you for the tools we have today of wisdom and humility to get through these tough times. In Jesus' name, amen.